your Bibles, join me. The book of Exodus. I almost said the book of Hebrews. Man, that's been a while. Book of Exodus. It is about the Hebrew people. In Exodus chapter 12. Do you remember what God said as he was uh, giving Moses instruction about confronting Pharaoh uh, to let God's people go? Oftentimes, God would remind him that the reason for this is so that God's name would be made great. The reason they went through these various plagues or strikes against Egypt is so that the people would know that Jehovah is truly the Lord. And certainly, they are seeing that as this last plague comes about. Last week, The main idea was to remember, remember. We had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it was commissioned so that God's chosen people would remember God taking them out of Egypt and the circumstances by which he did that. Today our passage is the actual event of the Passover and that final strike against Egypt, the death of all the firstborn. So I invite you to read the text along with me. So we're in Exodus chapter 12, we begin reading in verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he, pro- as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Let's pray. Father, there is a great amount of death in today's passage. Death is a very sobering reality for us. It is by far the the greatest way that, uh, that creation demonstrates to us that it is broken. Death is unnatural. It is not right, and we know it. 
There's so much death in today's passage. There's so much death because this is a very serious subject. That the children of Israel had not obeyed, had not trusted the word that they heard from you through Moses. If they had not trusted and obeyed those words, they too would have experienced death in their household that night. Lord, help us to recognize the importance to Trust your promises and heed your warnings as well. Father, overshadow us this morning as we dig into this passage that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Our big idea this morning is simply this. God fulfills his promises and his threats. We love to remember that God fulfills his promises. Yes and amen. As believers in Jesus Christ, we look forward to the day where no longer will this body need glasses. No medication. No struggles. No more sprained ankles. We look forward to a time of no pain. And it's not just a time, it's eternity. It's a lot of time. No struggle. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. We look forward to that. And God is going to keep that promise. But just as surely as God fulfills his promises, he also fulfills his warnings and his threats. And we see both of those happening in today's passage. First of all, in verses 21 through 27, we see Moses instructing Israel uh, through the elders. It says, Moses called the elders of Israel and told them, go select your lambs according to your clans and kill the Passover. Now that sounds a little bit odd because didn't we read earlier that they were supposed to select the lambs four days prior? Yes. That was the statute. That was the law going forward. But in this first uh, the, the actual Passover, it seems that there wasn't actually time. And so there are things that are happening. There, there are a little bit of order of sequence that's happening a little bit differently in the actual Passover than what they will do in the memorials to come. Does that make sense? Uh, so, so Moses uh, is networking through the elders of Israel um, from the, the, the heads of the tribes all the way down to the families, telling them what to do. Take, take the lamb kill the Passover lamb, take a bunch of hyssop, um, dip it in, basically take a little paintbrush of, of, of some plants that you can find, and it says dip it and touch it to the lentil. I guarantee you people were not just touching it to the lentil. I guarantee you they were dipping it in and making sure that there was blood visible on those doors. Because what did the word say? When I see the blood... I will pass over you. The blood is of ultimate importance. You know, when we slaughter an animal, the the blood is more or less a waste product. Um, If there's byproducts that you use with the blood of animals, just don't tell me about it. I don't want to know. But not here. Here the blood was the most important part. Capture the blood as you're slaughtering the lamb and then, and then paint some of it on the doorway of the house, the entrance to the house. And not only that, uh, it said, uh, do this, 
decoration. That's not the right word. But do this painting, if you will, and then stay in the house. Look at the end of verse 22. It says, none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. Don't leave. You've trusted the Lord enough to start this process. See it through. Don't leave. For the Lord, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood, you'll pass over. What will happen to Egypt will not happen to Israel. Now, this isn't the first plague we've seen that. Some of the other plagues, uh, God, uh, for instance, the, the, the last plague before this one was the, the darkness, and God made light for the people of Israel, but the people of Egypt were in such thick darkness they couldn't even leave their homes. They couldn't do anything for three days. What will happen to Egypt will not happen to Israel, but not just because they are Israel, but because of the blood. The blood is their refuge, their protection. They must be in the house that has blood. God will either see the blood or he will see their sin and he will strike them. Unless he sees the blood, there is no refuge. As the New Testament church, we cannot help but see how the blood on the doorway represents Jesus. That when God looks at us as to whether or not he's going to take us to be with him in heaven, or if he's going to banish us to a place of torment forever that we know of as the lake of fire, the only difference between one and the other is not how we lived in this life, it's the blood. Is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life? Unless the blood of Christ covers us, we too will be destroyed. That's it. That's all of it. It's not how you lived. Living right is important, okay? Living in obedience to God after trusting in Him for salvation is important. In fact, that's that's how p- other people will know that you truly are a believer. They'll see your good works and glorify God in heaven. But it's the blood. Israel applied the door, applied the blood to the doorway because they believed, because they had faith, because they, they trusted the word of God that they heard through Moses. And just like them, we too have the saving blood applied to our lives by faith. Not by family inheritance. Your family may all be saved and you could remain an unbeliever. Now, if you grew up in a Christian home, you should be hearing the gospel and that should be the doorway for you to believe. But growing up in a Christian home does not give you salvation. It's only by the blood. Salvation does not come by a recited creed. Repeat after me. Dear Lord, please forgive me of my sins and make me your child. Those, may be, those words may be a prayer of saving faith, and they may not. Repeat after me can be useful, but it is not by itself salvation. Even a confession of sin. We are not saved by confession of sin. Lord, I know I've sinned. How do I know this? 
Because people can admit to being wrong and still not accept the salvation that they need. Pharaoh does it. And oftentimes when an unbeliever says, I know I've sinned, their next statement is, so I'm going to try real hard to not sin so much. We are saved by the saving blood applied to our lives by faith, not by family inheritance, not by creed, not by confession, not even by repentance of sin, saying I'm going to leave sin behind and pursue good. Yes, repentance is a fruit and evidence of salvation. It is not the cause. It cannot be. The saving blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life, is done so by faith alone. Now, that should turn into confession, that should turn into repentance, that should be vocalized by creed, by stating what you believe. Those are all fruits of salvation, not the cause. The Israelites were saved because they believed the word of God and then obeyed by slaughtering the lamb and painting the blood on the doorway. Passage continues, verse 24, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, you shall keep this service. Remember last week, our, our big word was remember. It continues this week. Verses 26 and 27. He says, explain it to your children. Don't just do it. That's 24 and 25. You're going to, this, is, this is a command for you to repeat annually every year in perpetuity. Don't just do it though. Explain it. Verse 26. When your children says to you, what do you mean by this? You say, well, it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. Why? Because he passed over our houses and he struck the Egyptians with this annual festival and all of its uniqueness. And we talked about the uniqueness, remember? Uh, Eating a a roasted lamb uh, fairly well whole is not exactly how one would normally eat. Uh, Eating unleavened bread would not be the choice of dinner roll. Eating just bitter herbs as sides would not be the standard choice. This meal is going to be unique and you're going to repeat it every year. And it's going to evoke questions. What are we doing? Dad, why are we doing this? Really, why did we have to bring supper into the house as a cute little lamb for a few days and then slaughter it? Why are we doing all this? These are normal questions. It was the parent's job to have the answers. So Moses has instructed them to go and do the Passover rituals. We see in verses 27 and 28, Israel obeys. Verse 27, the end of verse 27. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Israel had the right command. They had heard the word of the Lord, of what they were supposed to do. 
They had a right understanding of God's message to them. But without obedience, what would it matter? What if they had said, Moses, yes, we know that God is going to do what he says, but now we're just going to go home and watch the game. Okay, they wouldn't have done that. We as a church stand on the word of God as our sole authority for faith and practice. That's what we declare. That's part of who we are as a church. And we're not alone as churches. Now, we're, let's be honest. The majority of churches in the world are not like that. But we have a long history of churches who are faithful, have been faithful to the word of God. And, and we stand on their shoulders as it were trying to do the same thing, declaring that it's the word of God that dictates who we are and what we do, what we believe, and how we live it out. We've been doing it for 50 years as a church. What, what good would it do for us to say we stand on the truth of the Bible if we don't actively do it? The Israelites were given the command to slaughter the lambs and prepare the meal. And hearing the command, what do they do? They bowed in worship And they went and did it. What would their posture of worship mean if they did not go out and actually do what they were commanded? The same could be asked of us. As we gather here together today and have a posture of worship, singing together, sometimes standing, sometimes seated, being led through the reading of the word of God, What if all this posture were just that and it didn't lead to obedience to the word of God? Whether we're talking about a response to a sermon preached or a brief passage read any given day, do we put into action God's commands or do we simply stop with that posture of worship? I've, I've checked off my list, my devotions for the day. Now I can go do what I want people of Israel believed that God fulfills his promises and his threats, so they obeyed. And they killed the lamb. And they prepared the meal. Verses 29 through 30, we see God strikes. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And just as just as they were warned before, uh, it's phrased just a little bit differently, but it's the same concept from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne. So the highest, most elevated person in the land, all the way to the lowest slave, the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. God fulfills his promises. He also fulfills his threats. Egypt knew all the way back before the first one, before the first plague, Moses tells Pharaoh that this is going to end with death. Verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night and he and all the servants and all the Egyptians and there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Imagine that. Not a single household 
was exempt. There was either a dead lamb or a dead person. Death was everywhere. If you were in the Egyptian homes, you had a dead person because you did not believe. Imagine being the firstborn in a Hebrew home, knowing that that lamb that died, that we ate the meat and then we burned the remains. Remember, they were supposed to not leave any leftovers. That were it not for that lamb, it would have been me. There was either a dead lamb or a dead person in every house. Now you may be thinking, what about houses that did not have a firstborn? It's a good question, isn't it? It is very easy and prevalent for us to apply our 21st century Western culture and kind of lay it over the words of Scripture and wonder how how does this fit. Because we primarily have single-family households. So we could conceivably have a household where there's no one who is a firstborn. Now, it's not going to work in my house because Amanda and I are both firstborns. Uh, but there could be two second-born children who are married to each other and their children have grown and are out of the house. So there would be no firstborn in the house. But the concept of a single-family household would be very odd in that, in that day, in that culture, in that region. In fact, in many parts of the world today, it's still a very odd concept to, to have a single-family household. Households would be multi-generational, all living and working together, supporting one another. So yes, it is not far-fetched that there would be at least one firstborn son in a household. By the way, in chapter 12, we do not specifically read that it's firstborn sons that are in mind. He could have meant firstborn daughters. He doesn't specify. However, in chapter 13, where God lays out the consecration of the firstborn of all uh, for him, and that's a couple weeks yet before we get there. Um, it, he says in chapter 13, verse 13, Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Uh, and so in chapter 13, he makes clear that firstborns was referring to the sons, so it's logical to understand the firstborns in verse 12 as being the sons as well. But regardless, death in every household. Moses spoke, the Israelites obeyed, God struck the Egyptians, and then in verses 31 through 32, we see that Pharaoh loses. Then he, Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Now, if you recall from the end of chapter 10, let's just read it, verses 28 and 29 of chapter 10. Pharaoh said to Moses, get away from me and take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses responded in verse 29, as you say, I will not see your face again. 
These verses that we just read in chapter 12 do not require Moses and Pharaoh to have a face-to-face conversation. So the end of chapter 10 is not contradicting what's happening here. But what we see is Pharaoh uh, getting the word to Moses and Aaron, saying, get out of here, leave. You know, every negotiation that Pharaoh had attempted so far is now fully out the window. Do you remember those negotiations? Some of them were pretty weak. Everything that Moses demanded, Moses speaking for God, everything that Moses demanded, he's getting. Moses demanded that all the people were, were to go, that they were to take their flocks and their herds with them, that they would leave and not return. What were Pharaoh's demands throughout this whole saga going all the way back to the first plague? At one time, Pharaoh agreed to let them go, but as long as you leave your livestock. Moses said, no, we we need our livestock to sacrifice. We don't know exactly how we're supposed to sacrifice. We need to take them with us. Another time, Pharaoh had tried to negotiate with Moses, "Just, just take your men and go worship because I know that's what you want. That's basically how he worded it. Take your men, leave your wives, your children. And of course, Moses didn't give in at all. Pharaoh is accustomed to getting what he wants. And if he's negotiating with someone, perhaps another king of another nation, if he's negotiating with someone and not getting everything he wants, it's going to be because that's a very powerful person he's negotiating with. He's negotiating with the leader of a bunch of slaves, and he's losing. This certainly has Pharaoh embarrassed, but it's far too late for Pharaoh to save face. He has completely lost. In, in his desperation, he does make one final plea for Moses. Did you see that at the end of verse 32? And bless me also. You, you and your people, get out. Bless me. Pharaoh knows that Moses' God, that Israel's God, is the real deal. Various times, Pharaoh called on Moses to pray, to relieve Egypt of the plagues that were happening at that time. And every every time, Moses went and prayed, and what happened? And God relieved them of the plague. Pharaoh understood what was going on. It was Moses' God who was inflicting all of this. It was Moses' God that could give reprieve. After the seventh plague, the intense hail, Pharaoh confessed to Moses, I have sinned. After the eighth plague, the locusts, Pharaoh asked for forgiveness. Now after this final plague, Pharaoh asks for a blessing from God. See, Pharaoh understood certain aspects of God. He had seen God cause plagues and remove plagues. But his knowledge, his confession... His requests for forgiveness and blessings were not from saving faith. He remained in his sins. 
God fulfills his promises and his threats. His promise is that all who come to me, Jesus said in John 6, 37, all who come to me and whoever, no, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. By the way, that portion of John 6 in in the 30s, it's a very long chapter, you need to know it's in the 30s. That section of John 6 is some of the most solid teaching on the security of the believer. Because God is the one who calls and draws and gives them to the Son and the Son holds each one in his hand and no one can pluck them out of the Son's hand. And God the Father's hand holds the Son's hand and no one can pluck them out of the Father's hand. There is security for the one who comes to God in faith. God fulfills his promises that all who come to him in faith will not be cast out, will not be put to shame, will not be lost. But God also warns that if there is no blood, there is no salvation. Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And here's the kicker. It can't be my blood. It can't be your blood. It had to be pure, unsin-stained blood. It had to be Jesus' blood. Applied to us by faith. So the question I want to leave you with this morning is, what promises are you resting in? What promises are you resting in that give you hope, that keep you going day in and day out? And let me also ask, what warnings should you be considering? As we prepare to observe the Lord's table, we're going to continue to consider God's promises and his threats regarding the Lord's table. Because God fulfills his promises and his threats. Here's a promise. The Lord's Supper is more than a passive symbol. It is us participating in Jesus' crucifixion. It's a a union between us and Jesus. And that's not uh, some, some theological speak that I just came up with or I found or I heard from somewhere else. This is from Scripture. Because again, as a church... Everything we believe and do is grounded in Scripture, 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. In fact, if you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, you can do that. We'll be, in, be there for a little bit. 1 Corinthians ten sixteen. The cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about the Lord's Supper. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? So this humble act of participating in the Lord's Supper, of of taking uh, this unleavened wafer of bread and taking this little cup of juice, this humble act shows our union with Jesus. And the passage continues. Next verse, chapter 10, verse 17 of 1 Corinthians. Because there is one bread, we who are many 
are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The promise of the Lord's table is a solidarity that goes both vertically, us to God, to to Jesus, and horizontally, that with one another. In fact, the the King James word in uh, in these verses is communion. Is it not communion with the Lord? And that's why we use that word, because we are unified one with another through the Lord's Supper, and we're also being unified as the church body with our Savior who died for us. a wonderful promise as we do this as we remember what God has done through his son we have unity there's also a warning and that's in the next chapter 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 27 and the warning put simply is this taking the Lord's Supper lightly irreverently Taking the Lord's Supper while holding sin in our hearts comes with a risk, comes with a warning. Let's read it. Verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. It's an intense warning. Take your life into your own hands. You risk an early death by participating in eating a little tiny wafer and drinking a little bit of juice because you did so irreverently without honoring the Lord, by holding on to sin, by by holding a grudge against another believer, whatever it is. If you're here today and you partake in a manner that is unworthy, I likely will not know. I don't know what sin you have been committing. I don't know what sin you like. I don't know what what relationships you have that need to be healed. You might fool me. Maybe. But you will not fool God. That's what I love about this passage in 1 Corinthians. It doesn't just warn It gives the way to resolve. Verse 28, so let a person examine himself and then partake. Examine yourself, confess that sin, take care of it, and then participate. Be part of that unity, one with another and together with our Lord. It's... I'm going to ask the deacons to come forward. It's fitting that we have communion when we talk about the Passover in Egypt. But the Lord's Supper is not the Passover. In fact, as you recall, when uh, Jesus and his disciples uh, observed the Passover together, it was after the Passover meal that Jesus then instituted this new ritual, this 
new, I'm going to say opportunity for worship. That's not a good word. It's a new ordinance of worship for us to do as a church. To, as believers in Jesus Christ, come together and remember what the Lord has done for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for the Passover. That for many centuries pointed the Jewish people to the one true Passover. The one lamb whose shed blood would take away all of their sins for all time. Though they didn't understand the details, they didn't know the specifics of how Jesus would fulfill it, the the word of God is clear that, that the sacrifices of the Old Testament, beginning with the Passover, but including all of them, the atonement sacrifices, all of them, did nothing to actually remove sin. They only pointed to the one true sacrifice. So Lord, we thank you for the ordinance of communion, of the Lord's Supper, that as we observe it, we remember the cost of our sin. We remember that it was Jesus' shed blood that it took to be a payment of our sin. It wasn't a lamb. It wasn't the finest bull in the herd. It had to be the perfect son of God. So Father, as we have taken some time to, to remember your sacrifice, Lord, I pray that we would Revel in the promises that you have made to us and that we would genuinely stand alert at the warnings you have made us so that we might partake this morning of a a pure conscience knowing that our sins are forgiven and we're not pursuing sin in our lives knowing that Our sins are forgiven not because we are good, but because Jesus is good. Because you see Jesus' blood applied to our lives. So Father, we thank you for this element of bread that reminds us of the body of Jesus that was broken for us. I pray that you would help us to remember afresh that sacrifice that you made in Jesus' name. Amen.